0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Few people in American politics have lived more history than Bob Schrum. from his role in a succession of presidential races as one of America's great speechwriters and strategists to electing uh, 30 members of the United States Senate and numerous governors. For four decades, Bob Schrum has been in the middle of everything in our politics. He's currently the director of the Jess Unruh Institute at University of Southern California, where he also, along with Mike Murphy, a Republican strategist, just launched a bipartisan Center for the Political Future. I visited Bob in Los Angeles recently and talked about his long career and his current project. Bob Shrum. Great to be with you at, at your Institute of Politics. Well, yeah, thank Un- you. The Un- Institute of Politics yeah, here in we,
0: Cal- at USC. And we've just started the Center for the Political Future, yeah. which is going to do a lot of things that an Institute of Politics does and some other things besides.
1: There are a lot of people who are looking forward to the political future because the political present <laughs> isn't all that pleasant, but we'll talk about that uh, in, in a bit. You know, when people think of you, they think of this erudite, sophisticated, um, and probably imagine you as having been raised that way in sort of, in sort of bucolic splendor somewhere. Uh, and you grew up in coal country, at least for the first eight years
0: of your life, in Pennsylvania. Tell me about your family. Uh, my uh, father was a, a tool and die maker. Uh, my mother uh, stayed home, raised the kids. It was the 1950s. uh, And uh, her father had represented uh, a big portion of southwestern Pennsylvania in the Pennsylvania legislature. Uh, So she's kind of married on the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, He, though, had started off as a coal miner and become a labor organizer and then gotten into politics. Uh, And I found some things that he wrote over the years to the Pittsburgh papers that have now been put in books. And he was, he was a very eloquent writer. Uh, so this, it's a genetic thing. Well, I don't know about that. But <laughs> the, the sad thing is my, my stepson, Michael, took me on a roots trip back to Connellsville. And it's depopulated compared to what it was when we left. Uh, houses are boarded up. Uh, downtown is, is a, a ghost of what it was. Uh, my grandmother's, my father's mother's house has been knocked down for a highway extension. And we were there for about three hours. And I said, can we please leave and go back to Pittsburgh? Yeah. Which, of course, is a thriving city. Thriving city and, and, and it's an area that was reliably Democratic for decades, generations, voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump.
1: Yeah. But when you describe what you saw... It's not hard to understand it. You know, there is a sense of economic alienation and of disruption and of loss that he, you know, he, he is a master at exploiting grievance, and, uh, and, and he uh, took full advantage of that.
0: That's part of it, and I think part of it is that a lot of folks, even people who voted for Obama— uh, in 2008 or maybe 2012, voted for Trump, and I think the difference is that there was this feeling they got that Obama cared about them, understood them, uh, and would try to do something. Uh, it's you know it's a phenomenon that's an old one in my lifetime. Uh, Robert Kennedy had an extraordinary appeal both to to African Americans during the unrest of the 1960s. And to Wallace voters. Yeah. Uh, But it's this – they want somebody who cares about them. Now, the ironic thing is uh, Hillary Clinton actually had on her website, uh, as (laughs) she says in her book, I I had all these plans on my website. Well, most people don't read the website and don't read the plans. But she actually had a plan for a kind of modern, updated Appalachian Redevelopment Act uh, of the kind that JFK pushed through in 1961 – Uh, but I don't think those folks even knew about it, and if they knew about it, they didn't credit it. And,
1: you know, the fact is that um, these programs are are trees, but you have to be able to describe the forest, and the forest is about values, uh, and it's about principles, and um, if you don't project a sense that this is central to your thinking and to your vision, uh, then those, those, those are just so many trees that...
0: Uh, or go unnoticed. Uh, it's yeah. In the old days, we would have said it was literally trees that you just yes. you cut down trees. You printed this stuff, but it doesn't matter to people if they don't get a sense of empathy from the candidate who's talking to them. And fairly or unfairly, I think that's what happened with Hillary Clinton.
1: You're, uh so y- your, your uh, interest in politics is. Something that obviously came with the family came. You you grew up around it.
0: Well, I didn't. I didn't. My grandfather died, uh, who the one who was had been in the legislature, died two months before I was born, uh, and uh, he, his name was Matthew. That's my middle name, is sort of mm-hmm. because of, of, of when it happened. Uh, I always loved and cared about politics. Why? I, I, mean, I have no idea why. I can tell you that as a five-year-old, I vividly remember my parents clanging pots and pans together to celebrate when Harry Truman unexpectedly won the 1948 election. And I remember in 1951 when Truman fired MacArthur and Douglas MacArthur was giving his speech to Congress – I successfully petitioned my family to let me stay home from school. And old soldiers the never die. They
1: simply fade away. <laughs> and I yes.
0: like the old soldier of that lore. <laughs> of course, what he did was he didn't fade away. He tried to run for president in 52 right. and lost. Yeah. Uh, but we, we left when I, I had just turned eight. Left for California. Left for California. My father drove us across the country in a 1948 Chevrolet. Uh, we found an apartment in Culver City. Uh and it was the best thing that ever happened to me, uh, the quality of schools that I could go to. You uh, went to Jesuit school. I, I went to St. Augustine's Grammar School in Culver City and then the Loyola High School, mm-hmm. uh, which was a Jesuit high school, where I learned, I learned ancient Greek, which uh, actually has no use that I can figure out. Uh, but I did find one once. We were in Greece before it joined the European Union, and all the road signs were in Greek, so, I could, and even though the language has changed massively from ancient Greek to modern Greek, the alphabet's the same. So, I could say, that says Corinthos. That's Corinth. Let's get off. So, <laughs> and you said,
1: thank God for the Jesuits. Huh? <laughs> but you, um, you also had opportunities here by happenstance. Uh, the Democratic convention was in Los Angeles in 1960. Uh, John F. Kennedy, Would be the nominee of the Democratic Party, and you got you got a gig as an intern, working for Pierre Salinger, who was uh, Kennedy's press secretary. How did that How did that come about?
0: Uh, I went and volunteered at Citizens for Kennedy, uh, which was run by a woman, or the office was run by a woman named Liz Russ, who uh, worked for Martin Pollard, who was a big car dealer out here, who was involved in in the Kennedy campaign, and when the campaign moved into the Biltmore Hotel, she sent me over to work for Pierre Salinger. And uh, one of my jobs, uh, and this tells you how much politics has changed, how much our sense of insecurity and, and danger uh, prevails now, one of my jobs was to take people up from Salinger's office to uh, to JFK suite, uh, which was supposedly secret, although lots of people knew where it was. And... So I, I met Hubert Humphrey because I took him up to, to the suite. And I took Averill Harriman up to the suite, and he said, Have you ever met Senator Kennedy? And I said, No. Uh, and so we knocked on the door, and uh, uh, JFK answered the door. Uh, I can tell you that he did fill a room. I mean, his presence was was magnetic. Uh, and he said, Who's this? <laughs> Averill said, Well, he's working for you. He's never... He's never, I shouldn't say April, although he became a friend of mine. Yes, my I know wife. you were very close to yeah. Pamela. I mean. Yeah, and he, he, so I got in a conversation and he said, you know, where where are you going to go to school? And I told him I thought I was probably going to go to Georgetown. He told me his brother-in-law, Steve Smith, had gone there and loved it. I Steve told me many years later that he didn't like it at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then he said, well, tell me how you, you're you working here. What How does that work? What are you doing? I said, well, I take the first bus in the morning from Culver City down here. I take the last bus home at night, uh, and I'm having the time of my life. And so it, it was a very nice conversation. I go downstairs, and uh, Pierre Salinger looks at me and says, You know, you're supposed to take people up there. You're not supposed to go in and talk to the candidate. What is your mother's phone number? So I had to give the phone number and called my mother and said, Is it all right if we give him a... A hotel room, uh, and which I actually shared with a Coca Cola machine. I still remember. <laughs> uh, and uh, if we give him some money for food, uh, and she said, sure. Uh, so was it was, on, it was orders wasn't, from, it wasn't. on orders from the candidate? <laughs> yeah. I mean that's what happened, but he was he was he, you know he was he was teasing Salinger. Yeah. You know, he was that abusing, nice kid. Like, that's nice. Not kid holding probably. up
1: uh, <laughs> appropriate work standards
0: for I, the I young don't, people. I don't know what he said to him, but when and, he, and and Pierre wasn't really mad at me. I mean You did go to Georgetown and you arrived
1: there in the midst of the Kennedy period. Uh, What was Washington like then, and were you, did you go and do things around Washington relative to
0: government and politics as a kid at Georgetown? I didn't do a lot uh, in terms of what, you know, like Bill Clinton going off and working for J. William Fulbright and stuff like that. He came several years after I did. I met him when he was a freshman I was a senior, but uh, I, I got very involved in college debate, and... I also got very involved in debating on campus. We had something called the Philodemic Society, uh, and we would meet every week, and we would have debates. Why, why were you drawn to that? Was
1: it part of your interest in politics? <laughs> no.
0: Uh, when I was growing up here, uh, everybody was discovering the new sport of surfing. Uh, I am not... Uh, <laughs> as I once told a German ski instructor who tried to teach me how to ski in Switzerland, he said, you are sportif, no, and I said no. Uh, And so for me, it was books and at a competitive level, high school debate, and that just carried over into college. But the other thing we did was every week the Philodemic Society had debates, and Georgetown at that time was probably even though it was catholic and kennedy was catholic it's probably 60 65 percent republican uh and it it was an expensive school i mean i had a scholarship but it was an expensive school and kids came from pretty well-off families and so we had these vigorous debates every week about uh about politics uh and uh I did. I do remember that the first night I was there, and it's very different now when you go to college now. You know, my stepson took a college tour. Everybody takes a college Mm -hmm. tour. You go around and look. First time I ever saw Georgetown was the first day I arrived to go to school. You know, you weren't going to fly from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. to look at the place. So that first night, uh, someone who was a friend of mine who I knew actually from high school debate, who was in my class, uh, he and I went down and stood on the Capitol steps where the inaugural address had been given. Uh, I think it's hard for people who weren't alive then, even though it's so powerful if you watch it in film, to understand how deeply that speech touched a lot of people in my generation. Uh, so th- that's one of the first things I did. But I spent, I spent most of college uh, half-studying. Uh, and debating over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. national debate tournaments.
1: And were there people that you debated who ended up, you saw emerge in politics later? Uh,
0: Wes Clark was the best debater I ever... Really? General Clark? That West West Point ever had. Uh, uh, West Point was always at a disadvantage because the cadets had no time, and... Debate required a lot of time. You had to do a lot of research. You had to do a lot of preparation, and you didn't have Mister Google to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you had to go to the library and do it yourself. Uh, but West West Clark was a on the other hand, really they had good lethal good. training, which must have been <laughs> intimidating.
1: He was uh, he was good. Huh? He was a very good debater. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you decided to go to law school. and You went to Harvard. Yeah, law school.
0: I went to I went to which law I'm sc- curious about because you never even took the bar. No, I never took the bar. I went to law school because that seemed to be what you were supposed to do if you were interested in politics. And I knew I was going to be very interested in politics. Uh, and I already was. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I applied to Harvard and Yale, and I got into both of them. And I went to Harvard because I could get a job coaching debate. So they gave me a scholarship for the tuition, but I my parents finally were going to buy a house. So I had to 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 find the money for room and board and living expenses, so I got a job coaching debate at Brandeis. Now Harvard never knew about that <laughs> uh, because I'm not sure they would have approved of it. But I did that for the first two years, and then well, they
1: the, probably were suspicious when the Brandeis debaters <laughs> kept beating their <laughs> debaters.
0: Well, uh, let me tell you, the Harvard debate team was then and now quite extraordinary, mm-hmm. uh, as you might expect.
1: We just. Uh, I just had a conversation with Austin Goolsby, who was a champion debater at Yale. We talked about his con- his uh, conquests over Ted Cruz and national debate contests.
0: There were two different kinds of debate back then. There was a very small circuit of Yale, Princeton. John Kerry was a debater at, at Yale. They didn't debate the rest of us. The, the, what was then called, the, still is, the NDT, the National Debate Tournament, circuit uh, consisted of most major colleges and universities in the country, uh, and uh, I always thought that the, the, it was interesting because it was a different kind of debate. Ours was a very policy-oriented debate: who has the best policy at the end of the uh, end of the round. And theirs was a more oratorical form of debate. You know, I want to ask you about this because you were involved in ten presidential races,
1: by my count. I mean, I think that's about right, isn't it?
0: I think it's eight.
1: Well, I'm including abortive races, speech writing, you know. But I include Lindsey in there, and
0: well, he I left well before he declared for president. Yeah, uh, but
1: we'll get we'll get to him in a second. Uh, but you've prepared a lot of candidates for presidential debates, and just talk for a minute about how different those debates are from the kind of debating, formal debating that you were trained to
0: do? Because, uh, I mean, there's a vast gulf between the two. Uh, absolutely, and all you have to do is watch the first Kennedy-Nixon debate, and you find that out immediately. Uh, Nixon, who had been a, a, a high school and perhaps a college debater, uh, very much engaged in a kind of point-by-point argumentation. He even won the, f- the flip of the coin and chose to go second. Who would choose to go second in a presidential debate? You want to go first. You want to set the tone. You want to set the terms of engagement. Uh, And I think that they're very, very different. Uh, What you have to think about, and you've done this too, what you have to think about when you're engaged in presidential debate preparation, uh, aside from the obvious things, what's the other guy going to say, et cetera, Mm -hmm. is first of all, what are the big themes what's the big message? Can you get it across uh, n- number one number two uh, are there going to be moments because moments really matter in presidential debates yeah. uh, I you know I think of of uh, of uh, John Kerry in the in the uh, first debate with Bush and we we sort of knew that uh, Bush had this habit, which I suppose his own people warned him against, of justifying the Iraq war by citing 9 11. And so Kerry had a mantra in his head. Uh, uh, he says, uh, uh, Saddam, I'll say Osama. And about two thirds of the way into the debate, I think it was, Bush did exactly that. He said, the reason we went into Iraq was the enemy attacked us. Mm-hmm. And Kerry flattened him. He said, you know, Os- Os- uh, S- Saddam Hussein didn't attack us, Osama bin Laden attacked us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bush made the, then what I think is a classic mistake of trying to redeem himself by saying, well, I knew that, I knew that. Best off, you just let it go. It's, mm-hmm. like, it's like Lloyd Benson, when he delivered the line about... Uh, uh, you're no Jack Kennedy, yes. uh, and Quayle quail. inexplicably interrupted him and said, Senator, I think that was uncalled for. Yeah. At which point Benson, and none of this had been prepared, Benson just turned around and said, you're the one who made the comparison with, with, with JFK, not me. Yeah. I mean, and so he got a twofer out of it. Yeah. So it, it's that's critical. But the other but thing the way about you con- that, you know, you
1: mentioned that, uh, and the other thing about the Quayle-Benson exchange is that the the images on television of the two of them, Quayle looking like a, a a callow youth who had been rebuked by the school principal, uh, and Benson who looked like he was in command? Uh, those kinds of things don't matter in a college right uh, in a college debate. You know, I, I've been through good debates and bad debates, uh, and after the Denver debate where Barack Obama had a bad night, President Obama versus Mitt Romney. You know, we had a long discussion about it. He said, You know what? I'm trained as a lawyer. I think we're trying fact. That's not what these are. They're performances. You have lines, you have to know when to use them, and you have to understand the theatrics of them. And he kind of resisted that. He thought it was cheapening, but it's something that every candidate has to do. So uh, the skills that you learned were probably useful, but only in a limited way for preparing your candidates uh, for a television debate.
0: I think that's true, Uh, but I did learn a lot about the use of language, about the nature of argument, uh, and about how to try to advance an idea. I, I would say, by the way, that it's properly judged college debate back when I was doing it was not just about scoring points. It was about who in the end won the big ideas. So that's mm-hmm. the one similarity yeah. that I that I would cite between them. Uh, the, the, the biggest danger in these debates uh, is that someone's head gets overstuffed with facts. Yes. And they
1: just have— That was another uh, thing that happened in the first—and this is often true in presidential debates when you have a president who's—the president wants— You know the president has just this wealth of, and the staff pushes because they all want to make their points. Push all of this material uh, at the president, and uh, we saw it with Reagan uh, in his first debate with uh, with Mondale. It's um, it's a it's a problem. So you went rather than taking the bar after you're getting your I had no desire to practice law. Harvard law degree (laughs) with all honors associated you. Uh, you went and taught uh, speech and debate at Boston College
0: that's correct I did that for
1: uh, almost two years and then uh, and then you came to my hometown of New York City
0: well what happened was that Larry tribe who ha- was legendary Harvard law professor, professor a very close friend of mine uh, who had been national debate champion by the way in 1961 and i have been uh top speaker at the national tournament in 1965 and larry had judged me we become very good friends uh he took me out to dinner one night and he said bob you may find this worthy but uh you can't spend your life coaching debate uh and i said well i know what i want to do i just don't quite know how to do it and uh so i told him i'd love to write speeches be involved in politics and he wrote a letter, he wrote letters to uh, someone he knew in John Lindsay's office and someone he knew in Ted Kennedy's office. and uh, the person in Ted Kennedy's office, who became later a very close friend of mine, wrote back saying, "We just don't have any vacancies. And Jeff Greenfield happened to be leaving Lindsay at that point, uh, leaving the staff. He'd worked for Bobby and then he'd come to work. People for him. know
1: Jeff as, a, as a, a journalist, as an author, as a television personality but he started off working first for bobby kennedy and yes. then
0: and then for john Lindsay. yeah and uh so i i went down to new york to do an interview and and they we talked for a while and then they said we'll write a speech and get it back to us and i thought they meant go back to your hotel room and write a speech and bring it back which is what <laughs> i did uh and, and i and i got hired that day i had uh uh, a lot of admiration for for uh, John Lindsay. I think his political career, uh, at least in terms of the presidency, was timed in a completely uh, ineffective way. Uh, well, we should explain. You know, John
1: Lindsay, I, I was a 10-year-old boy in New York, and I was already, in, like you, I started, my interest started when I was five, and uh, I had worked for RFK when he ran for the Senate in 64, and then I thought that the... Uh, the uh, the the Democratic Party had nominated a hackett. It was Abe Beam who ultimately became mayor in nineteen sixty five. And John Lindsay was a congressman from my district. I lived in Stuyvesant Town in New York. And uh he was he was kind of a Kennedy esque figure and he was a he was a liberal Republican, which you have to go to, you know, museums of natural history to find <laughs> today. But uh uh but really a dynamic uh figure and Tried to do very progressive things in New York, so much so that he lost the Republican primary for mayor in 69, ran on a Liberal Party ticket,
0: and then became
1: a Democrat.
0: But what, what he did was he got very—he he was very much against the war, but he was at least as much against the tone of the Nixon presidency, especially what Spiro Agnew was doing. And he gave a speech uh, just before the midterm election in 1970 at the Family of Man dinner, uh, which I assume was probably not called the Family of Man dinner anymore, (laughs) uh, and which denounced uh, the Nixon tactics, the Agnew tactics, and the. Which were race baiting. Well, race baiting and student hating, and, Mm -hmm. you know, and. The end of that speech, the way the draft was written was – because I dared to do it – was to announce that he was becoming a Democrat, Uh, which David Garth, the pioneer media guru along with people like Bob Squire and David (coughs) Sawyer, uh, uh, David was very much in favor of it. Other people were not. He was Lindsay's media consultant. Yeah, he was Lindsay's media consultant. And he made the classic ad in 1969 because one of Lindsay's problems would have been this horrible snowstorm in Queens. And they persuaded him to sit on the steps of Gracie Mansion and say... We didn't clean up the snow in Queens as quickly as we should have, and that was a mistake. We didn't do this, and that was a mistake. But it was no mistake to hire 600 new police, whatever it was.
1: He won re-election because the Mets won
0: the World Series That's a big and it, when he went down to the dressing room and they poured beer all over his head. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that was good. Uh, yeah, and it was. But uh, he just couldn't bring himself to do it. I mean, he'd grown up in a tradition where— he saw Democrats as corrupt people engaged in patronage, all of that. He wasn't there yet. Uh, I was gone by the time that he uh, he switched to the Democratic Party, and I think he switched too late. Yeah, uh, you can't you can't announce that you've become a Democrat and then a few days later announce that you're running for the Democratic nomination for president. You can't lead the choir right, right. after you join the church. Right, right.
1: You. Um You worked for two candidates that year, Ed Muskie, who was the front-runner and flamed out, um, and then George McGovern.
0: Yeah, Uh, It's interesting because I I had made this decision that I was going to leave and and go work uh, in Washington for presidential candidate, and it was going to be Muskie. And I went to Jack Newfield's wedding. Jack Newfield was this extraordinary writer. Uh, guy column voice. in the Wash in the Village Voice, but r- wrote a- amazing books as well. And in fact, wrote one of them with Greenfield called the Populist Manifesto. And it was his wedding day, and and somehow or other I told him, and so he interrupted his wedding reception and took me into the living room and said, "No, you have to work for George McGovern." And I said, "Well, it's 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 already done." Uh, so I did work for for Muskie uh, and. Uh, he was in my reckoning, uh, the ideal vice presidential candidate, which, which he is had what been was in 68 and he had done a, a ter- terrific job in that campaign. He'd been a huge asset to Humphrey. Uh, when protesters in anti-war protesters interrupted him, uh, he would invite them up to the stage to say their piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he gave a brilliant speech that Dick Goodwin wrote, uh, on uh, the eve of the election in 1970, uh, which I think contributed to Republicans the Republicans' poor showing in that election. Uh, but he was not he was not an ideal presidential candidate. He could not bring himself to a settled position, for example, in the Vietnam War. I mean, he was against it, but I think he was sheepish about it because he'd been for it. Uh, you know, he... It, it, it was a very tough thing, so it wasn't until late in the primaries, when he really didn't have much of a chance with, in in Pennsylvania, that uh, uh, he gave a really tough anti-war speech, which actually had a lot to do with my going to work for McGovern, because there was a line... Did you, and you wrote that speech? He, I did write most of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. There, was a, there was a line in it that said, which of us, if his son asked him for bread, would uh, give him a stone? Uh, it's a line from Scripture, and then played off of that, you know, our sons have asked for life and we have sent them to an Asian jungle. Uh, And uh, George McGovern heard the speech and apparently said to Frank Mankiewicz, find out who that guy is, I would like to hire him. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's how I ended up working for uh, for McGovern,
1: who became one of my closest friends. He a very decent man. Uh, You know, he's associated with this route in 1972, some of which we now know was the result of chicanery, but but it, uh, nonetheless it was a it was a painful defeat. One of the things that happened that maybe was a metaphor for that was you wrote this uh, very powerful speech uh, with the refrain. I think it was entitled "Come Home, America." We didn't
0: stick a title on it,
1: but uh, but that was the refrain that everyone re- remembered. If They happened to be up at three in the morning when he ended up delivering that speech at what, at a kind of tumultuous convention in Miami in 1972. How painful was it to be the writer of that speech when you realized he was going to deliver it in
0: the middle of the night? Well, it was very painful and people tried to figure out if there was anything we could do. Could we interrupt the vice presidential nominating process, which had become chaotic, where everybody had been nominated, everybody and his brother had been nominated, Uh, and have him give the speech. Could we uh, do it the next night? But we didn't have the auditorium, and people had plane tickets. So we, he gave it. In, it was prime time in Guam when he <laughs> gave it. Uh, and and uh, uh, but that was part of what happened. Uh, the uh, fact that Senator Eagleton had uh, yeah yeah you know, he, he
1: his running mate Tom Eagleton it was disclosed had. Uh, uh, mental health issues, and it had electroshock therapy for that, something that I look back at now. And I, I, I realize how shameful that is. And we still have all this progress to make in recognizing uh, mental illness as an
0: illness. Uh, like but, that other cratered, illness. The, but that cratered the campaign. Right. And, and uh, I, he would have lost. There was no way we were going to win that election, in my view. He would have lost, but he might have carried... Ten states yeah, might have one. gotten forty-five percent of the vote, yeah. or forty-six percent of the vote. You know, one of the things have had that a happened. Future.
1: He he was uh, before he became a candidate, and his candidacy accelerated the movement to democratize the nominating process. Uh, it was a re- rebellion against bossism in the Democratic Party. The sense being that in nineteen sixty-eight, that. The bosses, Mayor Daley and others, controlled the convention, and there needed to be more, uh, more uh, democratization of the, the process so that voters would have a greater say at the grassroots. I'm, and I was all for that. Uh, I believe that was important. I want to ask you because you're a person with a sense of a great sense of history, and you've also been associated with these movements. Uh, do we do we go too far in that? Regard, I find myself, and I'll probably get notes about this for saying it. Sometimes a little nostalgic for the smoke-filled rooms because the smoke-filled rooms uh, produced, you know, some pretty extraordinary candidates when professional politicians got together and said this person could win,
0: well, and govern. Well, the first thing I'd say to you is I don't think Barack Obama ever would have been the Democratic nominee he would not for president have. under the old system. He would not have. And what, what really and and if you look at you know Franklin Roosevelt took I think it was f- five ballots it might have been four to get nominated in 1932. Democratic Party had a two thirds rule because it gave the South a virtual veto over who the nominee was, uh, and in the end he got nominated as part of a deal that was brokered by uh, Joseph P Kennedy. Uh, and William Randolph Hearst uh, to, to, to give California and Texas delegations to him in return for choosing John Nance Garner, then the Speaker of the House, as Vice President of the United States. Once he became Vice President, Roosevelt never gave him anything to do, and he famously said the, the Vice Presidency is not worth a pitcher of warm
1: well, the spit gets, yeah, is the way you clean it up. Spit is the way it gets, uh, <laughs> it gets published, but that's not what he said.
0: Right. Uh, but I think what, and and, and JFK in 60 went out and won all the primaries. That yeah. didn't win you the nomination. But basically he could then turn around to Mayor Daley and to, to David Lawrence, who was then the mayor of, Pittsburgh, later the governor of Pennsylvania, to the big city bosses, most of them Catholic, who had, were old enough that they lived throughout the Al Smith loss right. in 1928. You he point could turn to them, West Virginia. Yeah, and- but he could turn around and say, look, I've won the primaries. I'm the choice of Democrats in every poll. If you don't nominate me, they're going to say you didn't nominate me because I was a Catholic, mm-hmm. and then you really will lose the Catholic vote, which had been drifting away from the Democratic Party in the Eisenhower years. Yeah. Now he never said that explicitly, but you didn't have to say. And it
1: explicitly. in fact, you mentioned Barack Obama, the super who were party, of, who are party officials, uh, were inclined toward Hillary Clinton, but we're going
0: to go, we're going to vote for Barack Obama for just the same reason. Yeah. Well. So what I was going to say was, you're right about how this happened, when Humphrey was imposed uh, as the nominee by the big city bosses in 1968. Uh, and by the way, Mayor Daley actually made a run at getting Ted Kennedy. who Was know then that. only 36 know, years I've, old to, yeah, to take the, to the Bill nomination. Bill
1: Daley, he was there, I think, and
0: witnessed the conversation. Yeah. Well, and and, and Bill told me a story once about you know coming home and he was like 17 years old and finding all these. Kennedy signs in the basement saying, I thought we were for Humphrey, but uh, Ted Kennedy decided he didn't want to do it for understandable reasons and probably not some other reasons that mm-hmm. I think in retrospect he probably would have put aside. Uh, but there was so much anger that one of the promises was that there'd be a party reform commission. Yeah, And the, the party reform commission basically to this day, most of its decisions stand. Yeah. It's been modified, uh, but it basically said that you could no longer have a system which at its most extreme, for example, had the governor of Georgia just picking the Georgia mm-hmm. delegates. You know, He just picked whoever he wanted, and they voted for whoever he told them to. Uh, but you were going to have a system where the voters were going to decide. In terms of reservations, I think the new system has done it's not. You know, it's almost 50 years old now, but I think it's done pretty well in terms of 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 who's won over the years. Uh, uh, I'm, you know, I wasn't for Ronald Reagan, but I'm not at all sure that the party grandees would have picked him.
1: They would not have. Two and, years before he was the nominee, none of them would give him the time of day.
0: Right, because they thought he was too old. They thought he was going to lose for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, and I don't. I don't know that Bill Clinton could have could have been nominated mm-hmm. under the old system. Uh, I'm sure Barack Obama could not yeah, have been nominated. For sure. So those are all on the plus side. Yes. On the other side, I would say I don't think Donald Trump ever could have been nominated right. under the old system. Because what happened was— And maybe that's influencing my thinking. <laughs> when Democrats democratized their process, Republicans followed and democratized theirs yeah. as well.
1: You took a, a break after 72. You had a, 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 a hiatus in journalism— there, I remember reading some of your piece. I think is this possible? New Times Magazine. I don't yeah. think it exists anymore. No, it didn't.
0: Except we got closed down uh, right after we won the National Magazine Award. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Frank Rich was there. Janet Maslin was there. Some great job. Bob journals. Anson was yeah. there. There were some very interesting people.
1: They also did something. They, they I think, they ran a piece on the ten dumbest. Uh, oh senators in Washington. One of them, And the, the winner was Senator Scott from Virginia, who called a press conference to deny that he was the dumbest <laughs> person
0: in Washington, so, thus proving that he deserved the honor. And guaranteeing that a magazine that had a circulation of about 125,000, so suddenly the news reached the
1: entire country. You, you spent three weeks working for Jimmy Carter. A little less. Actually. 1976. Okay, but who's counting? Uh, you quit the day he won the Pennsylvania primary, which was going to secure And you wrote a memo that wasn't meant to be public, but became public, explaining why you were leaving. Uh, uh, why did you Why did you quit?
0: Well, I I have some real admiration for the way Jimmy Carter has conducted himself since his uh, presidential days, uh, and he's ill right now. Uh, I left because I. Th- I did not believe that he had any defining purpose in running for president other than becoming president. And yes, he had religious values, but he didn't have, the, in my view, the the kind of public purpose that was going to inform a presidency. Uh, he, he saw it as, in some ways as a zero-sum game, I think, which is you could take a yellow legal pad and for every policy you could draw a line down the middle and you could say here are the arguments for it and here are the arguments against it. I don't think the presidency operates that way. I don't think you can operate it that way. Uh, so I left, and the line that got quoted from the, uh, the letter was, I'm not sure what you believe in other than yourself. Uh, and I wasn't sure that I would ever be back in politics again. Uh, and that's when I went to work for New Times. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, four years later, uh, you were deeply involved in a campaign to unseat Carter, uh, a, a Herculean task to unseat a sitting president in his own party's primaries, working for uh, Ted Kennedy. You know, I'm interested in one aspect of it, which, you know, Ted Kennedy, as we'll talk about in a second, became, you know, arguably one of the five greatest members of the United States Senate in history, most productive, most respected, and so on, Um and he clearly came from a tradition uh, of, of of leadership and of a deep belief. Uh, and yet, the beginning of that campaign started with this interview with Roger Mudd. Were you working with him at the time? When no,
0: I came to work not long after that. But I knew about it because people were talking about it all over Washington.
1: So how is it that he could not answer the question why he wanted to be president? Well, I, I,
0: I'd say... Two things about that. Uh, first of all, uh, he believed that the interview had originally been set up uh, just before he took all of the next-generation Kennedys on their annual camping trip. Uh, he was uh, up in Hyannisport with basically little or no staffing. Uh, and had I already been in the campaign, had I been there, and had I had the authority, I would have listened to the first question I would have walked back into the house I would have come back out and I would have said there's a phone call for you mm-hmm. and that would have ended the interview uh but uh, so that that's part of what happened I think the other part of it is that he wasn't about to announce on television and if you listen to uh to the answer to that question it's not nearly as bad it's not great but it's not nearly as bad as lore made it mm-hmm. almost immediately mm-hmm. uh There are pauses uh, and halts in the answer, as there were, by the way, quite frequently with Robert Kennedy when he was being interviewed. But it became a big deal. Uh, But he survived that. I mean, we still had a big lead uh, starting off in that campaign. And uh, I think what got us in terrible trouble uh, uh, was the hostage crisis Mm -hmm. because President Carter Uh, basically said, I won't debate. I won't campaign. I'm going to spend every waking moment of my day working on the hostages in between having people come from Iowa and Mm -hmm. New Hampshire to the White House. Uh, And uh, the irony for Carter was that I think the hostages saved him in Iowa. A vote for Jimmy Carter became a vote for the hostages, a vote for standing up for America. And got him a sufficient lead in the delegates that, as you know, under the proportional representation system, if you start to fall behind, it's very hard to catch up. It is, yeah. And so that when, on on what was then Super Tuesday, when Kennedy won five of the eight states, including the big states of California and and New Jersey, it just didn't matter. I mean, you just couldn't get a sufficient number of delegates. So the hostage crisis had a lot to do with this. And then there was one other thing that uh, was our fault, uh, and entirely our fault. Uh, Kennedy was so far ahead. And as you know, the temptation in politics, when you got like 60% or 65% of people for you is don't alienate anybody. Well, Edward Kennedy was the single worst politician I ever met in my life at saying nothing. Uh, if, if he believed in something, he could be so powerful and he could be so persuasive. But if, if he was sent out and persuaded that, the best political course was to, to talk in Paul speak and say pablum, uh, he wasn't very good at it. Uh, and it wasn't until after he lost Iowa that he found his voice in a speech he gave at Georgetown university, uh, where he came out for some pretty tough economic measures and came out against, uh, the, 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 boycott of the Olympics that President Carter imposed after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the wheat embargo. He
1: closed quickly. I mean, the convention in 1980 was a tumultuous scene because there was an effort to un- unlock the delegates and let them vote uh, for the candidate of their choice at that moment. And there was a lot of
0: suspicion that Kennedy might actually win. Well, that's why... The Carter people were intent on not letting him speak until after that rules fight was settled on Monday night. And he
1: did speak, and you wrote that speech. It may be the I, most— I, you, helped,
0: I helped on that speech. Well,
1: well, he gave you credit for the speech. <laughs> so, I, I mean, and that's pretty rare when candidates do that. Uh, and uh, you can probably recite from heart the closing lines uh, of that speech, but uh, I— I have them there for all those whose cares have been our concern. The work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. And I remember being in the arena because I was a young reporter at the time for the Chicago Tribune, and the place just erupted. And in that, in a sense, my feeling was Carter's not going to win this election. This is, you know, that was a, and there was an awkward exchange between he and and Carter, between Senator Kennedy and
0: Carter there. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a mythology about that too, which I'll get to in a minute. But uh, the 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 power of that speech, I think, was, and I think this is true of all really good speeches, it wasn't linear. It rose and fell like a symphony. It was one part of it was a master class in how to take Reagan on, mm-hmm. uh, you know. The, the Republican candidate who said eighty percent of pollution comes from plants and trees, and that candidate is no friend of the environment. Yeah, right. Down to you know, calling Franklin uh, the New Deal uh, fascism, uh, and that, and Ronald Reagan has no right to invoke Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And people were going crazy in the hall. Right. Uh, and so after the speech, uh, and and you're right, he did he did give credit. I was I was. I stayed behind because we had a deal on – the Carter people had to give a deal where we got two of the three platform planks we wanted. And, in fact, we won on the third on the voice vote. It was clear, and Tip O'Neill banged the gavel and said, the third one's defeated, and people started booing. But that was our deal. Uh, And I was in the cab on the way back to the hotel, and Robert Trout, who had been a famous CBS CBS, reporter but was now was on the radio – was talking about the speech and said this marvelous speech and we loved it and, and it was pretty effusive and he said it was written by uh, Bob Shrum and Kerry Parker who was uh, mm-hmm. Senator Kennedy's legislative assistant and we were sidekicks throughout the campaign and we had so little money uh, that Kerry and I were sharing a suite with, uh, with Joan and Ted Kennedy uh, and, and he couldn't use his own money under federal law. Uh, and so I went in, and I knew we were going to have a little party, and he was having a party. There's about 25, 30 people there. And I said, can I see you for a minute? And so we went in the corner, and uh, I said, listen, I was coming back, and uh, this is what I heard on the radio. And you know, I said, I, I haven't told anybody anything. He said, oh, I told I said, "What do you mean? You told?" He said, "Well, so and so would have said he wrote the speech. So and so would have said he wrote the speech. So and so would have said he wrote the speech." So I said, Truman Parker wrote the speech," uh, and but he was that was a one of one of his great strengths. Uh, his he always gave people credit, whether it was another senator mm-hmm. who which it, is which is an incredibly effective. Yeah, uh,
1: it's it's why he was a, one of the reasons he was a beloved figure in the Senate. Uh, uh, I have to ask you one question about speech right? and then I wanna, I got to press forward here because I don't want to short shrift the other many decades of your career uh, here. But um, you, you, don't,
0: you don't type, do you? No.
1: Everything you ever wrote was in longhand. Yes.
0: Uh, although I now, with two fingers on my iPad, uh-huh. uh, I, I, I can do it if I have to. Uh-huh. Why? Uh, because I went to a Jesuit high school where they didn't think it was worthy to teach us typing. Instead, they taught us Latin and ancient Greek. Uh-huh. And did it impact how you – does it affect how
1: you write, do you think? I,
0: I, I think it did for a long time. I think now if I have to do something on an iPad or even I, – I did edit a speech at one point a few years ago and rewrite it extensively on an iPhone uh, – uh, I think it did then. Now I think I can probably do it either way. But still, if I'm going to write a speech, or write something like a speech, or or write uh, something about the Center for for the Political Future here at USC, I'll sit down with a yellow pad and write it out.
1: You know who uh, who does that as well as Barack Obama, when he's he's a superb speechwriter, as you know, and he would come in with pages and pages of yellow legal pad with his. Uh, uh, with, you know, meticulously written and then things, arrows
0: going off. And yeah, I had arrows all yeah, over the place yeah. and curlicues and go down to the bottom of the page.
1: Why, uh, uh, tell me about Ted Kennedy, the senator, very briefly, and the Senate that you knew when you worked there in the, in the early 80s uh, to about the mid-80s for him as a senator uh, you know, he's, pe- people speak about him, I'm one of them, with such regard now and, and a sense of nostalgia.
0: Well, he, you know, it was a Senate where people had very sharp disagreements on issues. But at the end of the day, they could be friends and they could look for ways to work together. I remember when uh, Ronald Reagan first came to town after he was elected, I Kennedy barely knew him, and he asked to see Kennedy. Uh, and and Kennedy went down, and he came back, and he said, "I'm going to tell you three things. One, he's not dumb. Hmm. Anybody who thinks he's dumb is just wrong. Number two, uh, we're going to have some sharp disagreements. Number three, we're going to find some places to work together. Uh, and and they did on something like immigration reform. Uh, so that was it was a different kind of place than it is now. And you know maybe." Trump is obviously a, 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 a huge breaking point, but you could see it beginning to come apart. I mean, in 2006 and six and seven, when uh, Kennedy and McCain tried to do immigration reform together, I mean, there was this huge rebellion in the Republican Party. And, and as you know, McCain had to back off of mm-hmm. it in 2008 to get the Republican nomination. Yes. Uh, so it's just a different kind of place. But Kennedy was always willing, A, to give credit to someone else. You want to be the lead sponsor of the bill, you're the lead sponsor of the bill. B, to come up with a – find find a way in the middle so that if you want to ensure the health of all poor children through the CHIPS program, you've got to get a Republican co-sponsor, go to Orrin Hatch. Hatch says, I don't think this should be just a federal program. Kennedy says, well, why don't we have the states administer it under federal guidelines? So you find ways mm-hmm. to to move forward even though you disagree. Uh, the other thing, and, I'll, I, and I know we're pressed for time, the other thing was – he was he was great company he yeah. was he was a fabulous friend and he was a lot of fun to be around you
1: uh speaking of fabulous you I, I was a practicing media consultant you were kind of a legendary figure in the years that you were doing campaigns you elected i think 30 you and your colleagues elected 30 senators and umpteen uh governors and so on um the thing that uh the thing that uh, you identify with in the public consciousness is your participation in these presidential races. I was on the losing end of one in 1988, by the way, in Iowa when you were working for Dick Gephardt. And, uh,
0: yeah, but we won Iowa, but then we lost. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, w- And one of the things that comes up— By the way, that ad you made was Simon and the Bowtie. Yeah. The cartoon ad was yeah. one of the best ads ever made. Thank you. Thank you. I did not.
1: Ask, I it I want to assert that I did not ask you to say that. <laughs> um, no, and and the the, ta, the the ad you made about the Hyundai's for Dick Gephardt was one of the best ads ever. That finished with "It's your fight too," which leads me to this next point. The, you are a person of strong views, principles, ideas, uh, and they're they're very much populist in nature, uh, and. Uh, these themes tend to travel from campaign to campaign and the question becomes do you do you fit the campaign to the candidate or do you look for candidates who
0: fit your rubric or do you try and jam your I'm not a purist uh, I you know uh, by no stretch of the imagination would you say that Bill Nelson is a populist candidate uh, he's a moderate moderately progressive Democrat. Uh, and he's a good friend, and I was proud to work for him. Has uh, a tough race right now. He does have a tough race right now. Yeah. Uh, and Same a lot of the Florida. outcome, I think, depends on whether or not the blue wave is a tsunami or a splash pool. Uh, but uh, so I, I, I don't think it works to to impose. In fact, I'm, I'm not going to mention the, the what I'm thinking of because it did happen once. I don't think it works to impose a message on a candidate. I think... It has to be what the candidate's about it has to be authentic people people figure it out,
1: yeah, but this people versus the powerful theme is one that seems to well, has animated you throughout your
0: yeah that line was it was actually a line originally in a Kennedy spot in the ninety four campaign against Mitt Romney, and we adapted it uh, for al Gore and it actually was who Al Gore was. I think, Al people, Gore I think
1: a, people forget the fact that his father was one of the great populist yeah. Democrats yeah. Uh, ever, and, and yeah.
0: there is that element of him. And Carter Eskew, who was my partner yeah. in, the, in the Gore campaign, had this great description of Gore as a futurist populist, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is what he is. Uh, in fact, he wrote a piece in the Washington Post a couple of years afterwards saying he wished he had emphasized more the people, not the powerful. He, that was, he that was getting pushback from that the That must have been White an House.
1: extraordinarily painful race uh, the way it ended. Um, and, you know, I, I, I will say this to you because I say it behind your back. Uh, I am very aware of the fact that there are a lot of vagaries in politics and one often gets too much credit and you know, you, you're never as smart as you look when you win and you're never as, as dumb as you look when you lose, but that race, history will show, whatever you feel about the Supreme Court and so on, that uh, George W. Bush won by 527 votes in the state of Florida. Uh, and if 528 uh, people had thought it important enough to go and vote, uh, Al Gore becomes president. History has changed in a dramatic way. Drastically. Probably no Iraq war way down the road on climate change. Um, you know, and, and, and maybe not squandering a two trillion dollar surplus. I say that. I always have to say parenthetically, I have a lot of personal affection for Bush because of the way he treated us in the transition and his regard for, for the office, which I think is notable today for its absence. Um, but, but you personally, uh, I always say, you know, uh, 527 votes, and Bob Shrum goes home. And takes the it hits for it. Carl's a genius. Carl Rove's a genius. And then four years later, you came very close in the Kerry campaign. You were you on the basis of exit polls went in and congratulated Kerry on 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 winning. I should and, have known better. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Everybody else has since. <laughs> so, uh, but how does? you you've had enormous success and enormous impact in politics uh, and and yet were thwarted in all of these presidential races how 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 do you regard that how do you process that
0: well i think first of all you have to recognize that you shouldn't be in politics if you don't realize that every 2 years or 4 years it could break your heart uh secondly if you really care about the things and the issues, uh, that you say you care about and that you go to work for a candidate for, uh, that in itself is some reward. Uh, and third, I always jokingly say, at least in the case of 2000, that Gore's the the one candidate in modern history who got uh, elected and not inaugurated. Mm-hmm. I think you could argue that that's true of the 1876 election too, but that's a, that's a different story. Finally, um, give me just a, your perspective on the politics of today. I'm uh, well. One of the reasons we're starting, uh, you know, you have a fabulous institute of politics at Chicago. One of the reasons we're starting the Center for the Political Future here is because we have such a corrosive atmosphere in our politics now. And what we want to do is model and hopefully advance a dialogue that respects, where people respect each other and they respect the truth. We have a fact-free politics today. People can believe whatever they want to believe and they can find a media outlet that will tell them Mm -hmm. uh, to believe it. Uh, So Now, on the other side of that equation, I would say that among students on this campus, among people uh, that I talk to all the time, I've never seen such a level of energy and commitment to get involved, to vote, to do something. Uh, And the system may be self-corrective. In Watergate, it was self-corrective. And what you have to hope here is it's self-corrective. But I mean, the very idea—and you were in the White House for all those years— that a senior administration official would write an anonymous op-ed in the New York Times basically saying that the president is... Right, that the escalator isn't stopping at every floor. Yeah. 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 I was trying to look for a polite way to say it. That's not nice. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, look, if you and I both deeply believe in democracy and in this system as imperfect as it is, there's going to be a test of this in November, and we'll see... Uh, and we'll see what happens. We should point out you're doing this uh, new uh, program with Mike Murphy, uh, who has been on the board of the institute. Right. Of college, still is, and he's at the stay. University of Chicago Said to me, which, said which, to me, can, do we, you
0: have any problem if I stay? I said certainly not. We we
1: appreciate <laughs> we appreciate that. Uh, but uh, a Republican and a Democrat who both understand the need for. Uh, for compromise, for collegiality, for a sense of mutual regard, even if we have deep disagreements. Hopefully, we can recover that. But uh, uh, I, I appreciate that, as always, you're doing your part, Bob. So,
0: Thank you. Love doing this uh, podcast with you.
1: Good to be with you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.